so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Bifocals aren't funny. Yes, they are. It's a, it's, it means you're getting old. Yeah, but I, I think I entered that stage when I was 12. <sighs> you do not know how to joke around very well. I don't okay. like manufactured humor. Well, that's what has to happen on this podcast. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and back with me from D.C. is Brent Leatherwood. Yes, did you miss me while I was gone to our nation's capital? Of course. You and all the other staff members, I had FOMO. Fear of missing out. Yes, fear of missing out for all of our non-millennial listeners. So we have a Marco Polo thing with the ERLC girls. And so I was telling them, don't have too much fun without those of us who are are not able to be there. And they assured me that they weren't having too much fun. Too much, yes. Well, I think we actually had uh, a great time, but you were missed. I can assure you of that, Lindsay. Well, thank you very much. You're just saying that because I paid you under the table to say that, but I appreciate (laughs) it. (laughs) You know, because you were in D.C. for the Stand for Life conference and the March for Life, we want to recap some of that and hear some of your reflections on your time there. But first, I want to highlight a piece or two from ERLC.com. And uh, the initial piece that I want to talk about is by our friend Jordan Wooten, and he has an explainer about Open Doors releasing its 2023 World Watch List. And it's always sobering to read this and to see the reality of what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ face around the world. So what they do is they list 50 countries where Christians suffer very high or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. And uh, Jordan shows us some of the top ones. And at the very top, to nobody's surprise, is North Korea. Now, with the exception, Jordan points out, of 2022, last year, North Korea has topped the world watch list every year since 2022. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be a believer there. And in addition, you have places like Sub-Saharan Africa, China, which we've talked about multiple times with the, the Uyghur genocide going on there, Afghanistan, and then uh, you also have places like Yemen, Sudan, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran. We need to be reminded uh, to be praying and to be partnering with organizations like Open Doors who are doing work in these countries, raising awareness of the persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing. Jesus reminded us to remember those who are in prison. We are to remember them. And I, for one, need to repent of being so forgetful Mm. in the luxury that I experience here in our country. Well, I would say there's a there's a couple of things that somewhat surprised me. I mean, 
based on its history, North Korea taking retaking the top spot shouldn't be all that surprising. However, uh, last year, Afghanistan and just the disastrous effects of America's disengagement from Afghanistan and the fallout we're seeing. I mean, it, it's it has become such a dangerous situation and a situation where rights that we're fully accustomed to have just continued to be rolled back. I mean, just just recently, you know, the focus on women being educated, young girls being educated, those have completely been taken back by the Taliban. And so I actually am, am somewhat a little bit surprised that it didn't retain the top spot just because that that news is continuing to be surfaced. And then also China. Now, that said, Open Doors uh, focuses on Christian persecution. So that's why maybe it's not a little bit higher. Uh, what's what's ongoing there is a genocide of the Uyghur people who are, you know, vast majority of them are Muslim. But it's what you said before, it is so easy to just kind of get lost in our American or Western either, you know, day-to-day uh, challenges or travails or just, you know, the luxuries that that we have that makes us forget there are other parts of the world where people are facing significant life and death, oppression of basic rights. It's easy to to forget those. And and then probably the last thing I would say is we need to be praying for these people. We also need to be praying for our missionaries that uh, the SBC's own International Mission Board is supporting throughout the world. And they are active either in many of these countries or regions uh, where these these countries are, trying to faithfully uh, live out and share the gospel in these contexts. That is unimaginably difficult. And uh, it just makes me thankful and grateful uh, for them and their response to God's call in their heart to take the gospel to these parts of the earth. And um, and so we need to be praying for those folks. Well, it reminds me, our my church, where I'm a member, our pastor is always faithful at the beginning of the service to pray. He has a long pastoral prayer. And in that, he prays for Christians who are being persecuted, specific countries. And this past Sunday, we actually had a pastor and his wife uh, from a country that we support, church that we support, who are being affected by the war in Ukraine and the conflict in Ukraine, and they have actually had to flee to another country because of political persecution in particular that's happening there. And just to see real-life people who are having to flee because they run the risk of being jailed, that one of the pastor's wives had already been jailed and had faced some persecution is just as astounding to see. And um, another one of the church members who's familiar with the situation was talking about how the IMB has missionaries there at the border of Ukraine and handing out supplies, providing food, because many people are leaving without, just with the clothes on their back or just a suitcase. It, uh, I can't imagine. So like you said, I'm thankful for the work that the mm. IMB is doing. Absolutely. And then next up, I want to highlight an article by actually a former intern, Anna Claire Flowers. However, when she was interning with us, her last name was different. Mm. And while she was interning, there was a a love connection there. ERLC so, Harmony strikes again. That's right. That's right. ERLC Harmony. And uh, and so she wrote a reflection on the March for Life, three lessons from the March for Life. And I really enjoyed this uh, beautiful reflection. And she talked about 
praising God for our freedoms and how the ERLC is involved in conversations and work regarding preserving religious freedom and just how in the religious or in the global context in which we live, she said, petitioning the government with hope and joy is a rare sight and one to be treasured. Because mm. just like I said, these this church we partner with, with my church, if you speak out against the government, you are being persecuted and targeted for that purpose. And then she talked about embracing interfaith and interdenominational efforts. We have some significant disagreements with people, but we agree on the life issue and we need to partner to get all we can get done uh, in order to save the most lives that we can and care for vulnerable women. And then she mentioned uh, proceeding faithfully. And this is in the context of our pro-life work needing to reflect our Savior, that unfortunately there have been many things done in the pro-life movement that have not reflected Christ and have not reflected His truth and His mercy and His grace. And I appreciated her reminders. And um, she just talked about how this march it was a, a march of victory this time because Roe has been overturned, but there was no, didn't seem to be any less excitement or urgency over the fact that there's still a lot of work to be done. And in light of that, Brent, in light of Anna Claire's reflections, I would love to hear just about your time and our staff's time in D.C. and what you took away from your time there. Well, I'll start by picking up on something that Anna Claire wrote and I'll just say that, you know, for our heart, that is reflective of, you know, something that's written in the Baptist Faith and Message, uh, Article 15, the, the Christian and the Social Order, where it says, in order to promote these ends, things such as the sanctity of, of life, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause. And that is why we participate in the broader pro-life movement. As you said, there are a number of folks uh, in the broader pro-life coalition where we do have uh, significant disagreements, yet we all are trying to accomplish one objective, which is the eradication of abortion. And so I'm, I'm really thankful that, that she, you know, highlighted that in, in her part. And, you know, just to kind of move on to last week and being a part of the march, I told several uh, reporters that uh, that we uh, spoke with last week, I, I really think that the the sense you're going to get, the mood that you're going to get from all these folks uh, from from various backgrounds that are coming here and who have faithfully come to Washington D.C. each year since uh, the the Roe decision. Uh, this year, though, there's there's going to be a mood of celebration. And rightfully so, uh, because Roe has been overturned. Roe is no more. And that's that's what we saw. Uh, we saw a lot of jubilation and, and folks just grateful that we in this generation have been able to live and experience uh, this moment. There's a, there's a lot of work ahead, uh, no doubt about it. I mean, we are far from a, a time and a moment where uh, abortion has actually been eradicated. But to get there you had to accomplish this very significant step, which, you know, in the life of the pro-life movement is uh, the greatest achievement, which is, which is overturning Roe. And so it was, uh, it was, a, it was a sweet time uh, in a way to be a part of the march and to meet with different leaders of various pro-life groups. And I, I think uh, our folks from our team who participated uh, with that, they, they would tell you that was the sense uh, on the ground in the march it, itself. And, um, and so, yeah, uh, but as I said, we, we actually ended up talking to a number of different reporters. There, there's one story that I would want to highlight in particular. It comes from the New York Times, 
And it talks about March for Life last week, and the author Ruth, Ruth Graham, the title of the story is March for Life Kicks Off in Washington, Setting the Stage for New Ideas. And so the story, the framing of it is, so what comes next? You know, March, the March for Life, it's centered on a day where pro-life activists and, and pro-life Christians come together to draw attention to this unjust Supreme Court ruling. And now that's been overruled, and praise God so. And so this story tries to get a peek at, like, what does it look like uh, for the future of the pro-life movement, not just the march, but in general? And so uh, she writes this, thousands of anti-abortion activists convened on the National Mall on Friday for the March for Life, the rally held every January since 1974 to protest Roe v. Wade. This year, for the first time, they were there to celebrate its demise— and with Roe defeated, the movement's veteran leaders stressed it was an opportunity for new ideas, organizations, and voices to rise and inject fresh energy into the fight. Quote, it's the beginning of an entirely new pro-life movement, Marjorie Dansfelser, the president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, told the New York Times shortly before the program began. Our job just increased times 50. Her organization's priorities, she said, are passing the most ambitious anti-abortion state legislation possible and working to elect a, quote, fight-ready anti-abortion candidate in the 2024 presidential election. Further down in the story, she writes, many activists say they see a reset as a positive, and she actually talked to me for this section, and I told her, Dobbs has provided an incredible opportunity for innovation in the pro-life movement, particularly at the state level. Mr. Leatherwood was among the attendees at a private convening this week for Stand for Life, an organization that started a few weeks ago as an alliance of more than 100 existing groups with the goal of building unity. One of its first projects is a curriculum on abortion and other life issues to be distributed to churches. The group was founded by Lauren McAfee, a granddaughter of the founders of Hobby Lobby. And so that's, that's a part of what we were there for last week as well. We talked previously on the podcast about the Stand for Life launch and are now former uh, colleagues, but very close friends who are leading uh, that organization. And, and so this, this week was about coming together, celebrating, and then convening to figure out the path forward for the pro-life movement. And it was a, it was a great time to be in Washington. I, I told the team uh, on our staff call at the beginning of the week, I, I honestly think it was a tremendous uh, week for us at the RLC and, and for the broader pro-life movement. Did you feel any uh, sense of heightened security or increased protests compared to la past years since the overturning of Roe, or did it largely feel the same? No, there there wasn't a noticeable um, increase in security. Part of that might be because, you know, there there was no presidential speaker. You know, a couple of years ago, President Trump spoke there. Prior to that, Vice President Pence uh, spoke there. So, you had these moments where there definitely was an increase in noticeable security presence. This year, there wasn't that. Probably the highest profile uh, elected official was the new House Majority Leader, Steve Scalise uh, from Louisiana. Uh, he spoke. And then the the biggest kind of private speaker was was former NFL coach Tony Dungy, who, who spoke. Uh, so you, you certainly had some big names, but none that required this massive uh, security presence. And so, no, it was, uh, it was a, like I said, it was a moment of celebration and uh, I didn't, I didn't notice any protests, honestly. Uh, they did close off a number of streets getting to the airport was a bit of a challenge uh, once the, the programming had concluded. But that's actually fairly typical. 
Kind of going back to Anna Claire's article earlier, reminding us, and the article from the Baptist Faith and Message about working together with people to achieve the same goal, people who believe differently to achieve the same goal. She had a funny little anecdote because a small group from the ERLC, including people with babies, you know, pushing strollers, uh, they were walking and then they almost got bowled over by another group of very <laughs> eager individuals, um, younger individuals uh, from a different faith background. And um, and Hannah was like, isn't this just the perfect picture of the pro-life movement sometimes? We are all together moving in the same direction for the same goal, but we're going to knock each other over in the process. <laughs> right. And that such a good description and hopefully will uh, not be the case in the future. The next thing I, I think bears talking about is George Santos, uh, the, the talented Mr. Santos, uh, who is the newly elected and newly sworn in member of Congress uh, for New York's third congressional district. And the reason I say that some of you may know a little bit about him uh, just based on what you've seen on the news, which is basically his entire resume and background as we know it has been completely fabricated. As a matter of fact, we're not actually sure what is true about his background, uh, whether it is his marital status, his citizenship, uh, his professional background. All of it seems to, he says, embellished. No, it seems to be just not true at all. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> How do you juggle that many lies is what I want to know. Yes. And and so, um, so I actually authored uh, a piece uh, that appeared uh, this week in USA Today calling for uh, Mr. Santos to, to step down. You know, some folks may say, uh, you know, is that, is that really what, you know, the URLC should be doing? Um, let me say, I, I think it actually is, precisely because the nature of the allegations against him are, all of this is fraudulent, and we are the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And so, obviously, lying has any, any number of uh, ethical uh, implications to it. But beyond that, uh, I think his continued presence in Congress does really significant damage to the institution itself. And that was part of my piece, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, I focused on some of the institutional damage it's done. And so currently, ongoing, it's Congress and, and him continuing to represent people there, people that he... Honestly, I mean, the way I put it here, he scammed those voters um, by, by telling them all sorts of these things uh, that just weren't true. But the fact that that wasn't uncovered earlier, uh, some folks have, have taken the, the tack of, of blaming the media. Uh, you know, maybe uh, there's some, some validity to that. But what I would actually submit, the bigger institutional harm that's been done is actually to the uh, political parties themselves. You know, when an individual puts their name forth to be the standard bearer for the party, typically the party that he or she wants to run on does some some very basic, although can be very significant, background research on the individual. And should they start going through the process, so does the opposing party. And it appears that neither the Republican Party in New York or the Democratic Party in New York or the national parties did that. And, and that just tells me they aren't fulfilling a role that traditionally has been carried out and done well by the parties. 
and so I think I think it speaks to the institutional harm uh, that that has occurred with the parties. They're just not doing the work that they need to, or uh, they've said that that's no longer going to be a function. And and I that's not good for our our civic health in this country because some of these things are fairly basic items that should have been caught with a fairly routine resume research, and uh, they weren't. And so I think that's uh, that portends bad things uh, in the political space in our in our country. Or a Google search, Hannah yeah. Montana and George <laughs> Santos. <laughs> you probably could have found that. Probably could have found that 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 wasn't true uh, either. And and uh, that's the thing. I mean, you you point that out in a in a in a joking way, but it actually it just speaks to the incredible number of falsities that he has said out there. I mean, some people have called him a fabulist, but it's even, it's, it's beyond that. Uh, we just don't really know what is accurate about him. There, there's some reporting suggest he, he actually may not be a citizen, which is, I mean, it's Plot incredible. Twist. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, he, he needs to step down. And there are a number of folks, uh, that are beginning the process within, uh, Congress to begin, you know, a, a, several ethical investigations of him by the House Ethics Committee. Uh, th- that process will take a while to play out. What, what I would say is he needs to step down. That is the way that this needs to resolve itself. And I'm not, I'm not naive about the political process that that will begin to set in motion. And there, there are some folks that have said, oh, you know, this means there will be another election. It, it may be hard for uh, Republicans to, to gain the seat. Well, actually, it, it was difficult for, for Republicans to gain the seat anyways. Again, healthy political parties would be able to accommodate a special election. So I, I dismiss that. Uh, I think in, in this case, what's right needs to be the aim, not anything, you know, it's politically expedient or politically helpful. And so he, he should not be in Congress. That's the bottom line. Well, I wanted to sum it up going back to why is this something that Christians should care about, pay attention to, and Southern Baptists care about, pay attention to. And this was what you said at the end. You said, along with the political arena, this issue is also surfacing in institutions of business, culture, and religion, sacrificing traits like decency, integrity, and honesty, all for the sake of making a buck or placating a base, ultimately leads down a path of destruction. For Christians— who say we believe that our internal and external lives should be consistent, guided by enduring and eternal truths, shining a light on this culture of scam should be a natural response. Failing to do so causes harm to our institutions, our churches, and our souls. So again, I think that highlights why it is something we should pay attention to and care about. Yeah, and and for for the folks in our audience who are specifically Southern Baptists, there are multiple resolutions that speak to uh, the moral standards that that we believe public leaders should guide themselves by. So just a couple that I highlight here. 1973, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, uh, we stated our hope that Christian citizens will demand integrity of all politicians who serve them. 1998, uh, after uh, the Clinton scandal, uh, we pointed out that tolerance of serious wrongs by leaders sears the conscience of culture. It absolutely does that. Uh, and then most recently in 2017, we called on public officials to conduct themselves according to the moral standards set forth by God's revealed truth. So our convention of churches 
has a demonstrated a long history in caring about this specific issue and saying we we absolutely should demand better from our our nation's elected officials and and I'm sorry but on every count George Santos fails and and thus he should not be in congress another issue that I was curious for us to cover and you to talk about uh, this morning are this news that we're hearing about classified documents being at the homes of former presidents or vice presidents. And what does this mean? What is the big deal? Obviously, we don't want classified documents just floating around. So can you talk a little bit about that? So the best way to begin is, is a story that kind of covers this. Uh, and we found one at Axios. And it says this, the FBI retrieved, quote, a small number of documents with classified document markings from former Vice President Mike Pence's Carmel, Indiana home, Earlier this month, according to Pence's attorney, the document discovery comes as both President Biden and former President Trump are under investigation for their handling of classified documents. Pence has said previously that he didn't take any classified documents with him when he left the office. CNN first reported that about a dozen documents marked as classified were found at his home. And then later it goes down to give the wider context The revelations come after several tranches of classified documents were discovered in Biden's Delaware home and former office this month, and also, as we learned, that former President Trump had documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate. So, uh, yeah, what this tells me is we don't have a good process for the final days of an administration, uh, a secure process where there is some sort of uh, intelligence officer, someone with, uh, you know, a security clearance at a particular level that can help guide either former elected officials or senior staff members who who might have a security clearance and just help them understand like, hey, these documents need to remain with the government and and kind of walk with them uh, through that. Because in some ways, it, it seems like uh, these documents were just kind of stuffed in boxes on the way out the door, and that's that's certainly not the way uh, sensitive material uh, should be handled. Um, I should point out that Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed uh, two uh, special counsels, one for President Trump's case and now one for, for President Biden's case, yet to be seen whether a third one uh, will will be named for these documents with former Vice President Pence's case. So, That's what it tells me. I I think it's worth pointing out both President Biden and Vice President Pence immediately let law enforcement uh, and the intelligence community know that they they had these documents and and turned them over. And that's that's not what happened uh, with with President Trump. And so I think that's there. There's a bit of a difference there. And also there's some reporting that the nature of the documents themselves is different in in each of the cases. So I think that's worth pointing out also. Well, it will be interesting to see how many other former presidents, vice presidents have their homes searched and (laughs) all have classified documents. Hopefully there will be an overhaul of the system that will take place. I imagine it might be something easy to do, though I've heard other people say it's not easy to do. So I don't know. What do I know? I will never have to worry about that since I won't have classified documents in my handling. Well, there's just a, a a huge volume of paperwork, classified and unclassified, that just go through the administration, uh, particularly the West Wing, on a on a daily basis. And so, in, in that sense, you know that there might be some papers that end up in in boxes. That's actually not 
all that surprising. But you know, you're you're correct. I mean, if I'm if I'm on former President Obama's team or former President Bush's team, I'm probably just going ahead and doing a proactive review of any of the documents that are hanging around the house to say, hey, any of these not need to be here and flagging that so that those can be, you know, recaptured uh, appropriately by the government. As we close out, sometimes I like to do a fun post. And actually, our coworker posted this in Slack, and it's kind of funny, and it hits close to home. So our our market here is in Nashville, specifically in Franklin, which is a little south of Nashville, is so terrible that there was this Zillow listing, <laughs> and it was a fire, a mansion that had caught fire, and it was listed for $1.5 million. And some people have bought it already and they're going to renovate it. Actually, this is probably the best thing that could have happened to them that it went viral because he's going to renovate it on his YouTube channel. Mm. And you get paid on YouTube based on views. So mm. he, they're probably going to make good money and be able to pay for the renovations. But if you look at the pictures that were listed, it's the house on fire and the fire damage <laughs> to the house. <laughs> now, bonus, there is a... Uh, it's almost five acres, I think, mm-hmm. and it also has a guest house. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. two for the price of one. But still, it is hilarious to me that they were fire pictures of the house yeah. on fire and its charred remains for well, one point five million dollars. Yeah, it, and it, it comes with a it comes with a skylight. Yeah, but um, bum. That is a dad joke if I've ever heard one. It's a- <laughs> Gaping a, hole a in the skylight room. that birds can <laughs> yeah. go to the bathroom through. That would be terrible. <laughs> anyway, so if you want to pay ridiculous prices for homes, that come prob- to Nashville. That, well, yeah, that, I was going to say that gives you a sense of how into the stratosphere uh, the real estate market in in Middle Tennessee around Nashville has been recently. That a home permanently damaged by fire. Crazy. Uh, it goes for one and a half million dollars. Well, one of these listed, one of the pictures uh, says there's 4,200 plus square feet in the basement. So there you go. And, but there's no damage to the basement walls. <laughs> so you The rest have- of the house, uh, you have to find out. So. I mean, the room, I just have to describe this to you. It shows a picture of a room that has obviously been charred. I mean, there's there's damage. There's stuff that's all on the floor. And it says in this tacky red typing that somebody tried to make their own image, this room sustained the least damage, dot, 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 full masonry fireplace with stone surround. And the room is just trashed. Anyway, so welcome to Nashville, folks. If you want to pay an obscene amount, just move here. Mm. In the meantime, my husband and I will be in our house until uh, Jesus comes back. There you go. Or until the, the bubble bursts. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.